This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Paul Beckett and Jeremy Christopher, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 482 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the common horror movie trope of the final girl, a female character who is often young and innocent, who survives to the end of the movie while most or all of the other characters do not. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Grady Hendricks, making his 22nd appearance on the show. He's the author of nonfiction books such as Paperbacks from Hell, and novels such as My Best Friend's Exorcism and The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. He's worked as a screenwriter on the movies Satanic Panic and Mohawk, and his new novel, The Final Girl Support Group, is out now. So, Grady, welcome to the show. Hello. The next up, we've got Teresa DeLucci making her 13th appearance on the show. Her articles have appeared on Boing Boing and Den of Geek, and her short fiction has appeared in or is forthcoming in Strange Horizons, Weird Horror, Lightspeed, and Tor.com, where she also reviews books, TV, and video games. So, Teresa, welcome to the show. Hello. I like my odds of surviving the panel. <laughs> yeah, and that's also 13, so 13th appearance. So. Auspicious. Yeah. Uh, and also joining us today is Stephen Graham Jones. He's the author of more than 20 novels, including Lead Feather, Mongrels, and The Only Good Indians. And together with Paul Tremblay, he wrote the book Floating Boy and the Girl Who Couldn't Fly, which was published under the name P.T. Jones. His new novel, My Heart is a Chainsaw, is out now. So, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start off with Grady. So, Grady, what did you think of my definition of a final girl in the intro there? Does that pretty much sum it up? Is there anything you think we should add? Yeah, I mean, you know, debating on what a final girl is and isn't, I think, is fun. But I think ultimately it boils down to the woman and occasionally guy who survives a horror movie and usually kills or incapacitates the killer. And I feel like you can leave it there. Okay, well, we've got 90 minutes, so I'm going to go into it a little bit more than that. <laughs> no, 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 I just mean like you in terms of the definition, like Carol Clover, who wrote Men, Women, and Chainsaws, it kind of kind of popularized or coined the term, I guess, depending on who's saying it. Uh, I mean, she has a lot of stuff about how the final girl enjoys an ambiguous gender identity that leans male and usually often has a masculine first name and short hair and is a virgin or her virginity is a big deal. I think she's not true and i think that says a lot more about early 90s gender studies and where that was than the final girl trope i mean black christmas the very arguably first slasher with the final girl and the whole thing revolves around olivia hussey who's the final girl who's thinking of getting an abortion so clearly she's not a virgin <laughs> so i'm just saying in terms of like all this other stuff on the definition i feel like keeping it short and sweet covers many bases I mean, because I was kind of coming up with a checklist here of, of what I think makes somebody more 
or less a final girl. Like there are degrees. And so like you say, like the character survives to the end of the movie, but it seems like there are some final girls who don't survive to the end of the, end of the movie, like in um, the cabin in the woods. I think they all pretty much die at the end, but, but there's still a final girl in that. Yeah. And... I mean, yeah, that's true. It, it's also one of those funny things because it's like, then you get into the whole, like, what's a slasher kind of thing. Like cabin in the woods isn't technically a slash. You know what? So you get into all this sort of, taxonomy that that can be either boring or exhilarating depending on how many beers you've had and how much of a nerd you are <laughs> oh well so how about Teresa? is there anything you want to add about anything exhilarating you want to add about what a final girl is well yeah how i mean you see it i would agree with grady um, a lot of talk about debating what is or is not a slasher my ultimate final girl will always be ellen ripley and she's not really a girl she is, you know, she's a woman. She's a grown woman. Uh, she's a mother. And then people like to talk about, well, is Alien a slasher movie? Aliens is certainly not a slasher movie, but is it? But, you know, when I think of resilience in a woman who outclasses and uh, outsmarts the, the big bad, I always think of Ellen Ripley. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the things I have on my list here, too, is like, yeah, the character is in a slasher movie or a monster movie. And the character is resourceful. Um, so, yeah, that, that those are all things that sort of contribute, I guess. I mean, Stephen, anything you want to add about how you see what is a final girl? Yeah, resourceful is, of course, a big thing. But I think just as important of a characteristic is vigilance. Like you see Laurie Strode in Halloween. She's paying attention to her surroundings in a way that her friends aren't. You know, she's um, being careful moving through the world, which I think is important because a lot of these people and slashers who don't move through the world carefully get eviscerated, get decapitated, get stuffed into a cabinet, all that stuff. But, um, you know, the only real thing I would add to these wonderful other um, definitions and clarifications and all is that to me, the slash, the final girl is to the slasher as a silver bullet is to the werewolf, you know, as daylight is to the vampire, as a headshot is to a zombie, their nature's antidote to the cycle of <laughs> violence. Um, like the slasher has come onto scene because there's been some imbalance of justice, usually from a prank, a crime, something that went unpunished. And so that slasher comes and carves through this guilty crew, but then the slasher starts to exceed his or her kind of purview of guilty parties. And like when Freddie goes for the, parents who burned him's children he's exceeding his purview and the natural governor on that cycle of violence rises to put him down nancy mm -hmm. i mean one question i was going to ask is um what do you think about Liv tyler in the movie the strangers is she a final girl because she is the only you know basically the premise is that there's a a, a man and woman and they're terrorized in a home invasion scenario and at the end they both get stabbed repeatedly and left for dead and then in the last shot of the movie, we see that actually the woman has survived to this whole thing. But at least as far as I remember, she never really does anything that uh, resourceful. Or, yeah. Um, I was going to say, if I don't, I haven't seen that movie since I saw it in theaters when it came out. But as far as I remember, her husband is the resourceful one, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I wouldn't have characterized her as a final girl. Um, I think going off of what, Steven said, too, you have to kind of kill, you know, she has to kill the killer. You know, I think that's kind of an important point there. Yeah, or at least sure. get the better of. Yeah. 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 Um, 
and you know this is going back to what Grady was saying about splitting hairs between what is and isn't yeah. a slasher. <laughs> but but to to me, the strangers is a um, it's just kind of a stock home invasion story, you know. And yeah, yeah. And uh, Liv Tyler doesn't seem especially resourceful or empowered or any of that stuff. She just um kind of happens to make it through to that last moment, you know. So it was pretty much unanimous. We don't think she's the final girl. No. Yeah, I. I nah. <laughs> she's not allowed in the support group. <laughs> although, although strangers pray at night. That teenage girl who is at the center of that story, she's much closer to being a final girl. That's still a home invasion story, but she shares a lot more of the characteristics of a final girl. Uh huh. Well, I mean, Grady mentions yeah that the character you know in these eighties movies is often like a virgin or like doesn't drink or party and you know does her homework and is responsible and all this stuff. And it feels like that's kind of dropped out. Do you, uh, Grady, do you agree with that? Is that yeah, no I mean, longer I even such think, a big... Yeah, I even think that was missing from almost the beginning. Like I was saying, Olivia Hussey, I mean, really helped set the tw- template for, for Final Girls and Slashers. And she's a good girl, but she's pregnant when the movie begins. You know, she's a bit of a square. But so... I feel like a lot of that goes back to Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween playing Laurie Strode because they go out of their way to make her seem like a square. And because you've got PJ souls in that, who's like the party girl and because Halloween's so pivotal for slashers, you know, like it's just the template for so many that I feel like that's a Jamie Lee Curtis thing. It's not so much a, a all the time thing. Yeah, that, that whole um, people using slashers is a kind of moral pulpit, you know. Um, I've never quite agreed with that. And I guess John Carpenter doesn't either. Like, um, He says that in Halloween, the people who get slashed, it's not because they're having sex or doing drugs or drinking or any of that. It's because when they're having sex, they're a lot more vulnerable to someone with a knife. You know, if you're tangled in sheath and don't have any clothes, then you're not really paying attention to your surroundings either. You're pretty vulnerable, you know, and someone with a little kitchen knife can get the better of you. And especially if you're um, doing drugs or drinking, then you're not going to be properly vigilant as Lori is. Although Lori does smoke a joint while listening to Blue Oyster Cult, you know, she's not as pure as we all want her to be, of course. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, this whole idea that, you know, the, the virgin's, survives and the people who have sex get killed you know was was really a big um point made in scream right like, yeah that's that absolutely true too. yeah that's where i felt like a shift in it too it became less of a requirement for the final girl to be a virgin although they do make a big deal out of sydney's virginity in the first one because skeet yeah. Ulrich keeps wanting to take their relationship and make it r and she's like you know <laughs> she wants to keep it pg-13 you know and despite her reminding him that it is, you know, the one year anniversary of her mother's death. And he's just like, you're, you mean you're not into it now? This isn't a good time. (laughs) Yeah. And, and she does have sex with him and live, which I feel like Wes Craven wanted to make a point out of that. Yeah, I agree. I actually, Stephen, I was just reading an interview with you where you said that scream had a really big impact on you. It did, yes. I was, let's see, well, I must have been 24. I was in grad school in Florida. And the deal I made with myself to go to grad school was that I could only go if I wrote all the time. I didn't get to do any of that socializing or going out or anything. And so over winter break in 96, um, there came a knock on my door. 
there's a friend saying, Hey, let's go to a movie. And I gave him the usual excuse. You know, I said, Hey man, I'm, I'm writing a story. Sorry. And he kept arguing with me and finally it got to be easier to go to this stupid movie with him than to argue <laughs> with him. So I went and it was scream and I just felt my brain rewiring itself. Like all the homework I've been doing my whole life was suddenly worth it. And I was there the next six nights seeing that movie again. And I've been living in it ever since reading it, writing about it, watching it over and over again. I just, I'm on a plane tonight and I just downloaded scream onto my laptop once more <laughs> oh, wow. so I could watch it on the plane. That's amazing. So you saw it seven, you saw it every day for a week the first Correct. time. Correct. Yeah. Wow. Um, Screen's then, a weird, so sorry, 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 go ahead. Oh, and I was just going to say that, um, and then Teresa, you said that you've been watching Scream just yeah. in the background all, all day or something, right? All, all day. Um, 90s nostalgia, Nick Cave, like one of, like that was the movie <laughs> that introduced me to Nick Cave's music. He does Red Right Hand and it becomes, um, kind of an important song like in the sequel too it opens up the sequel in like the movie within the movie uh but yeah in like 96 i was working in a video store so i definitely really identified with randy meeks and <laughs> love that character and just anything 90s video store clerk energy um, will always have my heart and yeah it's been in the background all day and really fun i love 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 the opening sequences of each of the movies I think um, people forget how horrifying the opening of Scream 2 is and the way it plays, again, with that meta feeling and the commentary on a film. And to me, it's just like a total nightmare scenario that always stuck out with me. Like, oh, my God, I'm surrounded by people and I'm being murdered and no one's believing me like this horrible, horrible helplessness that I thought it just nailed. And Jada Pinkett did such a great job. Mm hmm. Uh, so, so Grady, go ahead. You were going to. Oh yeah, I was going to say, Scream is one of those franchises that has such diminishing returns for me, and and for like really clear reasons. Um, I think the first one is one of those perfect movies. I mean, you can you can put it up there with um, Jaws or or Aliens, or you know, it's just a movie that really it doesn't matter what you're into, it works. Every minute of it works. It's it's just pretty perfect. There's nothing you have to apologize for. And it's a pretty ambitious movie. I mean, there's some really like great one take long shots, especially walking into the high school and walking out of the high school. I mean, it's like over a minute long, both those shots and like they're going into the sun and out of the sun. It's really, I mean, technically amazing, but Scream 2, I really like. And then then you really get into diminishing returns. And I think one reason it declined so hard for me is it starts to climb. There's a great thing that one does, which is every male character in that movie at one time or another is a suspect. Like at one time or another, there's a moment when they really make a big deal that Dewey or principal, whatever his name is, or her dad or almost anyone could be the killer. And that, that Sydney is at risk from any man in the movie. And it turns out to be even worse. It's two men. The second movie, they bring in a female killer. And I feel like from that moment, Scream franchise goes into this tailspin of sort of weird misogyny and slut shaming. And basically it's all Sydney's mom's fault because she's a whore. And that, and then 
the last one gets into a hole, which I find so tiresome. Hey, it's another girl who's the killer because she wants to be famous. And it's just ugh. And I feel like when Scream goes for a female killer and women start entering the thing as a potential killer, it just goes downhill. Oh, that's really interesting. I'd never thought about it from the angle of who's the killer, but I totally agree with you that um, the first one is the, is perfection. And then the second one, I always, I always assumed that the reason it was not as strong was that, you know, the script leaked and Kevin Williamson had to rewrite it so that it could no longer be the boyfriend and the roommate who are the killers. It's got to be these two surprise people. And yeah, I feel like them having to do that, like really made the story fall back on its heels and it wasn't as good. And then of course, Kevin Williamson wasn't around for the third one. You know, he was off doing Dawson's Creek or whatever. Aaron Krieger, I mean, he did a good enough job, but it's hard to pick up somebody else's story for sure. The, the um, Harvey Weinstein scream. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fourth, the fourth, I, yeah, actually, I mean, I know that it's a slasher franchise, but yeah, you're right with the fourth, with the killer doing this basically for likes on social media, the motivation is basically greed. And to me, that makes it much more of a giallo story than a slasher. Story. Oh yeah. Oh, yes. Okay, so we, we have a lot of other uh, Final Girl movies to get to, so I want to <laughs> move on from, from screen. But, I, you know, I was going to say, yeah, that I mean, I, I you know, I, I sent you guys a list of, like, from Wikipedia what what the sort of classic defining Final Girl movies are. And so Scream is on there. Then we've also got Last House on the left, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Alien, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Happy Death Day. Cabin in the Woods and Final Destination. Those are the ones I've seen. I have not seen the sequels to most of the, to a lot of those things, like, you know, like the 10, uh, Friday the 13th or whatever. Um, but so I was just curious, like, Teresa, what do you think of that, of that list? Do you think that I've sort of, um, done a pretty good job hitting the, the main Final Girl movies or are there any glaring yeah, I mean, I, omissions? I mean, I think so. You know, I feel bad. Everyone's always like, Nightmare on Elm Street, Nightmare on Elm Street. It's, you know, it's Nancy. Everyone always forgets Alice Johnson. Yes. And I don't know. I feel like when I was younger, I watched the first Nightmare on Elm Street. And then for whatever reason, I was older and just walking through the video store, Dream Warriors, like the third one caught my eye. And then the fourth one would be on cable all the time. So I kind of grew up more identifying with Alice and her, and her story. I used to watch yeah. four and five all the time. And people yeah. always kind of, I will not stand for this Alice Johnson <laughs> erasure. Although I do <laughs> yeah, think he's a great final girl. Yeah, too. she really is. I agree. She is, you know, but I love Heather Langenkamp. I think, you know, that Nancy is iconic with the white stripe in her hair. Um, <laughs> You know, and really setting that template for when I think of Final Girl, I think of, you know, setting booby traps and yeah. uh, running and strength. And again, that resourcefulness that I thought was really good in uh, a, a more modern Final Girl movie like You're Next. Um, I really enjoyed that when I watched that one recently. And that made me think very much of Nightmare on Elm Street in a, in a certain way with the action sequences. Um, you know, yeah, I've, I've, I've been... I've been trying to I've been trying to work up a Nancy um, Halloween costume. I want to wear pajamas and then have a cord phone with a tongue coming out of it. I think that'd be a great costume. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yes. Okay, but so so in terms of so you said I should watch Nightmare on Elm Street parts four and five. Four and five, three, but I think you also you have to have three because yeah. uh, Do is it Dokken or Dokken? 
I'd never know Dokken, how to pronounce Dokken, it. Dokken. 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 I've been humming that song all day. <laughs> you know, and that has um, you know, some of my favorite scenes, you know, like I know I would never be a final girl. I'd probably be one of the girls in the horror movie who puts up a good fight at least. Like like that's how I'd like to think of myself. Yeah. You know, and Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 has a great one with uh why, why do you why do you think you wouldn't be the final girl? Well, Again, I think it goes back to that. I mean, I, everyone hopes to be the final girl and live to the end of the movie. But, you know, it has to do with that sense of justice and purity. And, you know, I kind of don't see myself like that. I, I just think I'd be more of, you know, I, I work out a lot and, and do a lot of uh, melee fighting in my off time. So I would at least put up a good fight. But I think I'd probably make like a hot-headed mistake. And end up doing something really stupid and getting my head cut off. <laughs> One thing Teresa said that I think is really a good point um, is that a lot of these franchises have these iconic final girls in part one, but they do really, really interesting things with final girls in later installments in the franchise, like having a final girl who's like eight years old in Halloween four and five, Jamie yeah. Lloyd. Um bringing Heather Langenkamp, the final girl from Nightmare 1, back as a group therapy counselor in Nightmare 3. And like uh, Teresa's saying, Nightmare 4 and 5, I think Alice Johnson's my probably my favorite final girl. Even um, the Friday series, later on, you get one of the few final boys, Tommy Jarvis, in 4, 5, and 6. Um, so all these movies have these iconic part one final girls, but later installments, they really start to do interesting things with the final girl formula. Hmm. Um, so why is the final girl formula so popular? Why does it show up in so many movies? Uh, Steven, what do you think about that? Because it's basically an underdog story. Like um, Alice should not be able to stand up to Pamela Voorhees as full of rage as simmering with rage as Pamela Voorhees has been for 20 years. And with this long plan of destruction of all camp counselors, but um, she finds it within herself to do it. You know, that's, th those are the stories we like the best. We like to see um, Beowulf rise to the level that he can tear off Grendel's arm. You know, that should not be possible. And I think we need these stories. We like the stories because they're those like underdog stories, but we need the stories because they're stories that instruct us how we, we too can stand up against bullies and overcome. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's definitely part of it is that it's just more of an accomplishment for a young woman to defeat the bad guy than if it's like some like experienced buff soldier or something like that it's just you know it's not as much of a uh yeah as much of a challenge for a character you, like that you know you know you see that in um that i think it's from 83 lamberto bava's blade in the dark everybody calls it a giallo and it's built more like a slasher but in that the final girl is this guy living in this kind of remote estate and um somebody's killing people all over the property and it's you know a big mystery and it's all violent but um he finally confronts this killer and it's this woman and this this protagonist, he is stronger than her. So he simply overpower, overpowers her and wrestles her to the ground. And you're like, well, that's kind of a letdown, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we like it more when it's someone who shouldn't have those muscles, you know, who shouldn't be able to do this. I also yeah. think that, I mean, the, the, er, to me, 
one of the sort of two like root final girl slasher sources is Little Red Riding Hood. I mean, yeah. it's a young girl given specific rules about what to do that she disobeys when she goes into the dark woods and meets uh, a male killer who outmatches her physically and has to be sort of resourceful and smart to defeat him. Exactly. And she and she has to walk into a world of masks and use violence yeah. to win, basically. Yeah, I think I agree. I, 100% I agree that yeah. Red Riding Hood is the Earth story. I mean, how much of it do you think that violence against men is sort of normalized? You know, like we're used to watching war movies where it's all male soldiers getting all blown up and stuff like that. And it's just we just find it more horrifying and more shocking and more disturbing when that stuff is happening to to women. I think that's true, too. Yeah. Uh, OK, sounds unanimous agreement on that. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, uh no, go on, uh, Teresa. Teresa. Oh, Teresa. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm trying to <laughs> uh, think of that. I, I don't know. I just, you know, I don't know. Like violence from men perpetrators could be uh, very normalized. Definitely. You talked about war movies and stuff. Um, and it would be more shocking for a woman to uh, get in on that kind of action, too. But I don't know. I guess I see it from a, a different point of view as um you know, a lot of these movies, just watching woman after woman get, you know, not 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 usually raped, not in slashers. Um, that's more in those grindhouse movies, you know, thinking about that. And, you know, that seems very normalized to me. And those are the kind of horror movies that I don't like to watch. Um, like, I do love Last House on the Left, but I don't know that I would consider that a final girl movie. Um, yeah, I wouldn't either. I would consider that a rape revenge story all the way. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, that's definitely something different. Yeah, um, although a, you did yeah. point out that, um, David, I think earlier you had pointed out that The Last House on the Left, the remake, which I thought was actually really good, um, did have more of that trope to it. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The remake is less of a rape revenge movie. I think just because I don't think you can make a rape revenge movie anymore. I think that's a genre that's pretty dead these days. Good. Yeah, it's good. Huh? Although there is there is revenge. I, I, I thought revenge was about as strong of a movie as, it, as they get. Mm, yeah. I mean, could Nicolas Cage and Mandy be a, a final boy? You can definitely have final boys. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that has to be. Um, a girl or a woman. I think it's just important that there be some sort of power imbalance. But I also, you know, there is something very, you know, what you're saying, Teresa, about like um, this thing about sort of the female corpse, I guess. There's a really weird thing where a lot of our pop culture is built around dead women. In a way, it's not built around dead men. Um, And that's something that I think I don't know what you do with that, but it's something that a lot of horror directors, I mean, Hitchcock and Dario Argento have both said, and I'm paraphrasing, but there's nothing more beautiful or there's nothing more horrifying or there's nothing more compelling than a woman being murdered or a woman in danger or a beautiful woman being murdered. And I really do think that there is a fascination in our pop culture going back to the 19th century, if not earlier, with dead women. Um, and 
it's really weird and I don't know if it's right or wrong and I don't know what you do with that, but it's one of those live wires that just exists. And I think something interesting that slashers do with the final girl trope is they push back on that or they're very aware of it and they are many of them and they push back on it. Well, I mean, cause you know, I mean, there is something definitely voyeuristic or erotic about a lot of horror, you know, a lot of final girl horror movies. Cause you know, like when you have sex, you get disheveled and sweaty and are, you know, screaming and stuff. And then the same thing happens in a horror movie. So I think there is definitely like a sort of eroticization of the violence that is part of, I think part of the attraction of, of a lot of these movies. Yeah. You know, that, 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 um, quote that Grady paraphrased, um, it's always, that's always, it's always such a dangerous thing. And Grady, I'm not at all saying that Grady is subscribing to or anything. He's just, just saying it. Um, but, um, I feel like a big, or maybe a, a component, you know, contributing to all these teenage girls getting burned through any slashers is that they, I mean, they were a, a lot of them were just straight out exploitation movies. And, um, they were yeah. feeding the audience gore. They were also feeding them nudity and female nudity was what they could both get in the theater and what would bring a young male crowd back then, you know? And so I think if you have 70% of your cast being these disposable women, then you're going to see a you know extreme imbalance and who gets killed. And I'm not at all meaning to vindicate those, those films that do that. I would hope to indict them actually, but um, <laughs> I think that's probably part of why it happened. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely say uh, one of the most uncomfortable experiences of my life was going to a horror convention where Ruggiero Diodato was the guest Mm -hmm. of honor and Goblin was playing. So, you know, they they were there. Um, So it was just, you know, House on the Edge of the Park, uh, Fulci, like all all of these movies of Cannibal Holocaust, everything. And I was like the only woman in the audience of 100 and by like the third movie with like the fifth rape scene, I I just got up and left. Like I took my boyfriend's keys and I'm just like, I can't anymore. I can't. And yeah. I went home and just like sat in a dark room and yeah. kind of felt nauseous all day. Um, I'm like, these movies are not for me. And I do yeah. think there is more of a trend now. We see it, you know, in in movies and in fiction as well, where the sexualization of a female corpse, like right off the bat is not the trend anymore it's you know i think true detective got nailed for it um and that was one of the last times i kind of really you know thought about seeing it as much in in culture where where i saw people call it out that it was like okay you know how many dead female corpses you know how many women need to get fridged in these kind of scenarios and fridging is different from a final girl that's a whole other trope but yeah i I'm liking the trend away from the sexualization of female corpses. Yeah. You know, well, sorry, I love our, I love Argento. Yeah. But well, it's an interesting thing because, you know, one thing we're doing, because I, I think I don't disagree with what you're saying at all, but one thing I think is hard when you have these conversations is also we're conflating so much in how we consume it um, in the sense that, the way the Italian film industry in, say, the 70s and 80s and the way the Hong Kong film industry in the 70s, the way the Japanese in the 70s and the way the American film all handled rape and, and the eroticization of violence against women in, in different ways. I feel like Japan and Italy 
didn't have as much of a problem eroticizing that kind of violence. Whereas I feel like the US, it kind of depended on who was doing it. And often there was an idea that you were going to depict it, but kind of turn away at a certain moment. Uh, and Hong Kong always presented it as very matter of fact, like, well, rape happens. Um, and it's this thing. And so it's really different how each thing, film industry does it. And so it's, it's, it's a really weird to conflate them, but at the same time, conflating them is how we consume them, right? Everything ultimately comes through one tube into our eyes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. Well, there's there's sort of a weird double aspect to it, right? Because it's like, are, are so many beautiful young women victims in horror movies because we value them, like I was saying, that we're like more shocked when it happens to them? Um, you know, that, that we find violence against men less, um, disturbing. But then there's also this thing is like, oh, or, or is it because we don't like women and enjoy watching them suffer? I mean, like, I mean, you know, is, is there some aspect in which, you know, like a, a beautiful young sort of privileged woman being, um, you know, taken down a peg or, um, you know, having her, her sort of comfortable life disrupted? Um, I don't, I don't know. It seems like they're, it's not crazy to say that some people would be drawn to that in some way. Well, just really, you know, one thing I, I really agree with what you're saying is one thing that I think is great about slashers is that, um, the killer is death, right? Like, like death is ultimately the, the, the nameless, faceless, masked killer with an unusual weapon, a, a scythe, like coming for all of us. And so, death is the great equalizer and so one of the things i love about a slasher like you look at like friday the 13th part two and like jason kills you if you're a badass and a gang he kills you if you're a good girl he kills you if you're a snob he kills you if you're a douchey guy he kills you like watching douchebags male or female get it from Jason watching like tough dudes and gangs, like male or female um, who are like menacing other people, get it from Jason that never gets old. It's not like watching hmm. de like death just takes everyone down a peg. It doesn't matter how popped your collar is or how many like motorcycles you ride or how big your Mohawk is. Jason will punch your head off. He definitely <laughs> will. And I, I it's funny that in the Friday the 13th series, kids are kind of sacrosanct because is it in six that Jason kind of cruises through one of the kids' cabins and he doesn't kill a single yeah. one of them, you know? Yeah, yeah. Ama it's amazing. I don't know why he has that kind of um, system where he, he's like, oh, they're kids. I shouldn't kill them, you know? See, Jason, he's nicer than Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's weird, too. Like, you know, when you look at the franchises, like – because Jason's sort of my, the one I like the most, just because it's yeah. got so many variety. Halloween is so grim and humorless. And yet, the relationship between Michael Myers and Laurie Strode that runs through it is so compelling and so good. Um, and then Nightmare is so squicky and sexualized. Like, and I, mm -hmm. I have to assume that's because Freddy's a, dead pedophile who like you know <laughs> comes into your dreams which is where you're like asleep and half naked anyways but like like nightmare is more bad touch and freddy coming up between your legs or you're giving birth to a demon freddy or he's coming out of your body or he's licking your face like 
the other killers don't quite touch you like that unless they're killing you. I want to ask Stephen, I was looking over your list of uh, of books, and there's one called The Last Final Girl from 2012. Yep. Yep. So you've been interested in this for, uh, you know, for a while. Yeah. Well, I mean, and back in 2006, I had a novel, Demon Theory, come out, which also has a strong slasher component. Yeah, I've been into slashers for since junior high. I have, can't shake them, and I don't really want to. Like, is it a chat like after in the wake of like we were talking about Scream and the deconstruction of the Final Girl trope and everything? Is it is it challenging to find a new spin to to put on that? I think that's the general thinking, but I once I get into the the muscle and meat and blood and emotion of a slasher, it's never really hard. Um, yeah, the dynamic, the formula, the convention set is more or less the same in all of them. But man, there's so many ways to undercut. There's so many different angles you can like go Leslie Vernon and do it like a documentary. You can do it like Cabin in the Woods and um, make it cosmic. You can do it like Happy Death Day and have it be a time loop. You, there's so many variations and all of them have the potential to be really compelling. Is there anything you could say about The Last Final Girl? Like what kind of approach did you take there? I took um, the hard part with uh, with writing a slasher on the page and I'm um, I'm interested to see what Grady says about this is that the the slasher grew up at the box office. And so it's convention set is basically cinematic conventions. And if you want to do it on the page, you've got to morph and adapt those conventions to work in text. And the way I did that in the last final girl was I put a lot of camera angles, a lot of kind of stage directions and a lot of scenes that like match cut to the next scene, that kind of stuff, just to try to port some of the, slasher conventions from the box office from the cinema into onto the page and who knows if it's effective but that's what i was going for yeah no you're right it's it is it's hard i find it really hard to try to make something cinematic on the page i just they're just such different mediums and I, I find that books are so internal and movies are so external. What I found myself doing is looking for like a literary equivalent. And that put me way into fairy tales and um, like myths and stuff like the Minotaur. And, um, you know, that big overwhelming male stinky musky presence coming for you're in its turf. Um, and, you know, the story of the Minotaur is very slashery, right? A bunch of like virgin youths are sent into this like, you know, remote labyrinth <laughs> where the Minotaur kills them one by one. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like for, for final girl support group, like the source I went back to over and over again was Angela Carter's the bloody chamber. Um, just cause there was so much in it about, men and women and male monsters and female women interacting with male monsters in a very physical, tactile, almost sexual way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, the movies were definitely a part of it, but I found that stuff really gave me a lot because it was, it was books, not movies. Have you, Grady, in your earlier books, have you deployed the um, final girl trope? I mean, not really, although all my books have female leads who usually make it in some form or another to the end. So, I mean, yeah, um, but that's just because my, my leads are women and I really I, I don't have the intestinal fortitude Stephen does. Like, I, I have a hard time killing my lead character. Like, I just find <laughs> that really difficult. It feels like well, self-harm. I mean, that- 
<laughs> I mean, that's interesting, though, what Stephen was saying about how the, the the slasher and maybe the final girl, to an extent, is sort of more naturally at home in cinema. Than oh, 100%. I literature. agree. Literature. I know. I uh, totally, totally agree. Like, um, finding finding final girl or slasher adjacent books before 1978 is really, really difficult. Um, you can find some books that are much more like Jalos, like Black Christmas, which the book, not the movie or the novelization of the movie Black Christmas, but the actual book Black Christmas is from earlier in the 70s, but it's a Jalo. It's, um, you know, it's not a slasher. And, and the stuff that fits in, and then earlier than that, you're in serial killer books. Um, so I have a really, I couldn't find hardly anything that sort of felt like a slasher that was fictional from before yeah, you, the 80s. Yeah, you have to go, you have to go back to like what Lois, Lois Duncan, is that right? Um, yeah, in YA, yeah, I mean, definitely yeah. teen fiction. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you, I always, I, I, this wasn't a slasher, but it, I think the slasher gets a lot from it is Agatha Christie's and then there were none, you know, it's got, yeah. it, it's got yeah. very many of the slasher components. I feel like. I mean, do you, do you agree with that, Teresa? Do you, um, do you, are there any sort of final girls in books that come to mind at all? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm on a panel with Grady Hendrix and Stephen Graham Jones. <laughs> so I, I'm definitely thinking of uh, their most recent books, you know, which is, you know, to get meta about it. Uh, you know, just thinking about how we've changed talking about final girls, I think, you know, and, and maybe I don't know, listening to the both of you talk, you know, it is hard to make a book feel cinematic. So you kind of can't. And I like that Grady's talking about talking in myth. But then in My Heart is a Chainsaw, uh, Stephen really goes into a girl who loves film. So you could still use the language of films and people who are reading it will know what what Jade is talking about, Jade the protagonist is talking about. And I think the trend in final girl fiction has been less watching them from the outside and more looking at how they feel and the trauma and the impact of trauma on their lives from their own point of view. And that's kind of how it's making it seem fresh again, uh, especially this summer. Well, yeah. Teresa, I mean, before the panel, we were talking about how you wrote this short story called Cavity that was in Strange Horizons. And that's kind of what it does, right? It's sort of try to get inside the head of a, a final girl type protagonist. Yeah, uh, a little bit. Um, I was listening to an unhealthy amount of my favorite murder podcast, <laughs> uh, but also just being a woman in a city who likes to go jogging. Uh, there was a really horrible homicide. Um, and it was all over the news. And, you know, this happens like every few months. There's a horrible murder of a woman on her own. And she's found in a park or, you know, in a ditch or an alley. And it just stuck with me. And I was just angry that I had to worry about, like, I can't just run, you know, on my own. So I just wrote this story about, you know, being uh, alone, never feeling really safe. And every woman probably imagines they'd be a final girl. But the reality is that women are most often the victim statistically and what that kind of feels like and and uh, how to kind of deal with that, that, fe- that lack of safety in, in the day to day. And you never know um, the people who are standing around you. And, you know, spe- particularly, yeah, when they're men, uh, it comes with a degree of danger in your everyday life. It's like uh, 
your difficulty level. You know, John Scalzi talks about, you know, the privilege of, you know, being on like the easiest setting in a video game, you know, when you're a certain demographic, certain privilege, and just kind of thinking about that. And uh, yeah, so I just, you know, wanted to talk about uh, the lingering effect of trauma when violence is always around you and always kind of something to be worked through. When I was saying that I saw you read this story at um, at the Line Break reading series in Astoria, and you said that you hadn't found the ending <laughs> nope. at that time, no. Nope. So I don't. Is it without? I'm, I'm without just giving away the ending. Is there anything you could say about that process of of finding well, what yeah, the story? It's a, it's a 2,700 word short story. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I won't go too into it. But yeah, when I was asked to read it. Uh, I didn't have an ending for it. I just knew like it started with um, there's this statistic from the FBI or maybe it's an urban legend that the average person will run across uh, 35 serial killers in their life without knowing about it. So I started thinking about some of the the close calls I might have had in life and made it a list. Um, so then it was just, you know, I only had like five minutes to read. So that only left me like, you know, 10 murderers to come up with. (laughs) That's, that's kind of hard for me to believe. I mean, like I I heard a, I I heard like a, um, somebody say one time that, um, you know, that so many students want to study forensic psychology and stuff like that. And they're like, you know, there's, there's just not enough serial killers to justify the number of people that want to go into it. But, um, but I don't know, maybe Grady or Steven, those is is thirty five. How does how does that sound? That sounds kind low of, to me. It sounds low to me. Really? Every time I, every time I'm on the bus, I'm like, every one of y'all are serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if you live in the Pacific Northwest, it probably goes up to about fifty three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, but I like what what Teresa was saying about um, slashers on the page being more from the final girl's perspective and dealing with her trauma. And all. I mean that that's what. Grady's the Funnel Girl support group is doing is dealing with with that trauma. Grady, can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's funny. N- n- no, um, <laughs> because, <laughs> because like you know, one of the things is um, the book, writing the book and reading the book are so different. I mean, y'all know this, um, and so for me, I tried really hard not to speak to real trauma. You know, I just wanted to write about these women and sort of their lives and and sort of getting Lynette from this crummy place where she's kind of eternally trapped at 17 to this better place where she can put that to rest and kind of move on. And and like I don't know real trauma in that way. You know what I mean? Like I haven't lived that kind of trauma, so I get very reluctant to speak to it because i also get emails uh from people who feel like it really does work for them and and gives them a handle on something they've been through and it's like i feel like and this is so lame to say but i feel like anything i say about it sort of closes off avenues for people to put their own reading on it does that does that make sense and i and that's what i want people to do because it's not my book anymore it's like it's out there um, but to talk about it a little more abstractly, I think one thing that Teresa was just saying that's really, oh, really dead on is as a dude, you don't know 
what the world feels like from a woman's point of view. And like, I had three older sisters and one of them took great delight in sort of like, you know, freaking me out being like, you know, and really showing me that I had no idea about like what the world was like outside of like my male point of view. Um, and one of the things I think slasher movies do that I think is really great is movies are fabulous and books too, but movies especially are fabulous for teaching empathy and putting you in someone else's shoes. And I think movies, because they get so into the final girl's point of view and the killer's point of view, and they sort of switch between the two and and often are in that for the last 30 minutes, the final girl's point of view. And, um, they're really good. It almost like they're almost like a video game where as a dude, you put on the skin of ex- of a woman and experience the world the way she does, where everything is a potential danger. Every person is a potential killer. Every dark forest or path or hallway is a potential where you might a place where you might die. Um, and I find it really interesting when you see things like the Friday the 13th video game, which actually really literalizes that, where you can actually, you know, control this figure of women and you actually experience that. And really, I mean, I think it's this weird, unanticipated consequence of these movies is that for 90 minutes, a dude kind of walks in this woman's shoes. Could you say, Gray, is there anything else to say about the final girl support? I mean, I guess from the title, it's maybe pretty obvious what it's about. But I mean, is there anything else you want to say about the book or how you came up with it or kind of like what yeah, it I does, mean, what yeah. twist it puts on the final girl or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, my my thing was mostly that, you know, movies deal with final girls coping with the after effects of what they go through, but never as much as I want to, because I feel like it would sort of eat your life. And I mean, I'll give the short version of this story, but when I was like a kid and not allowed to see R-rated movies, I would like read about them and pretend I'd seen them because I didn't want people to know I was a loser who didn't <laughs> see R-rated movies. And <laughs> I I managed to trick someone into buying me when I was eight a copy of Fango number 12 from April of 81 that had Friday the 13th 2 on the cover. And the big twist at the beginning of 2 is that Alice Hardy, the final girl from part one, played by Adrian King, seems to be the star of part two and then gets knocked off like 10 minutes in. She's like having this normal night. She's getting over her trauma from part one. And then like Jason just ice picks her in the head. And I remember really clearly being like blown away by how casually cruel that was. And it was the first time I started thinking about characters outside of the movie. Like clearly she had had a life between one and two putting all these pieces together and trying to get whole and, and doing a lot of really bad art, probably drawing too many pictures of Jason, but you know, that's her, that's her road. She's, she's on it. You know, I can't judge. Um, and I remember even, and I remember that moment really being like, I wish I could like make a better ending. Like, you know, cause, and I think part of it was cause I identified with her for some reason and I didn't want her to die. Cause it was like me dying. Um, but yeah, so that, and that's really where the book comes from. That and then seeing Heather Langenkamp show up as the group therapy counselor, uh, in part Nightmare on Elm Street three, where I was mm-hmm. like, holy crap, like a character from one horror movie could go to another horror movie and give them advice on how to survive. That's Jesus. Yeah. Sign me up. That's a great idea. <laughs> um, and so really that's where it like those came. And then the title, 
Like I, I, I got the title before I had anything else, you know, in like 2013, I was like final girl support group. I got to do something with that. In 2014. Yeah. 2013. Cause the first draft of the book is like January, 2014. Um, and I actually, so, so what happens in the last seven years or yeah, no, I, just, I just screwed around. <laughs> I was just having my ties. Um, no, I gave it, to, I wanted it to be my book after my best friend's exorcism, which is another book where I had the title before I had the story. And, um, and I gave it to my editor and it was literally, I gave it to him the week that the trade announcement came out that Riley Sager's final girls book had just been picked up for a big advance from Berkeley. And my editor was just like, I don't, I don't want to do, I don't want to take a bath in someone else's bath water. You know, like there, there's no, he's done it. There's no market. And I was like, God damn it. And so then <laughs> like two books later as paybacks for hell and we sold our souls. I was like, okay, I, I did a big rewrite. And I was like, now, and my, my editor at the time, uh, or Jason, I guess was still my editor. Then he was just like, ah, I just, there'd been a huge number of final girl projects in 2015, Riley Sager's final girls. I think scream Queens, the final girls, the movie, um, there were a bunch. And he was just like, man, I say final girls to book buyers and the light dies in their eyes. And I was like, oh, God damn it. And so <laughs> it really wasn't until my manager in 20, 2018 early 2018 was like man you write too slow for me like do you have anything i can be selling i was like well i got this trunked final girl thing uh but no one seems to like it and then he really liked so then i did a bunch of rewrites and, and took it out that's that's interesting when you talk about sort of this ebb and flow in in the you know public demand for uh, final girl stories and everything i'm, I'm curious steve and you what did you have you experienced that at all or like what was your experience uh, getting my heart as a chainsaw published. Well, you know, just like Grady, uh, 2013 was the first time I wrote what would become my heart as a chainsaw. Back then, it was um, I'll call it Lake Access only. It had the same proof rock, Idaho, which is in the book still, Indian Lake, Terra Nova, Camp Blood. The the setting was all the same. Some of the characters were there, but um, I really wrote Lake Access only as kind of me trying to I don't know ape um jeffrey eugenides the virgin suicides it, which he tells with that um royal first person the plural narrator the we instead of i and so i told the story from a we like that and it turned out that mm. this narrator was a, a boy in an iron mask who spoke in the plural he was very very similar to gunter grass's narrator and tin drum and and it was fun but I gave it to my agent and my agent at the time and she said, not really. And I read it again and I agreed that not really. So I threw it on a shelf for three years, I think it was. Came back to it and told myself, you can use the setting and you can use some of these peripheral characters, but you got to come up with a different engine for it, you know? And so I wrote and wrote. I think I wrote it from the ground up completely twice during that little push and discovered Jay Daniels, the horror-loving um, or slasher-loving um, protagonist of My Heart is a Chainsaw. And it still wasn't working, though. I had the novel built such that Jade narrated the first part, a sheriff who's in the story narrated the third part, and the putative final girl narrated the third part. And everybody who read it kept saying, we really like the first part, the next two parts not so much. So I went back and redid it all over again. Um, with Jade looking over her shoulder the whole time. And 
my heart as a chainsaw is cut up with all these little um, extra credit papers that Jade, a high school senior, writes for her history teacher on slashers. They didn't show up until the very end. Like Grady was saying, he did that mad rush rewriting the last third. For me, I didn't discover the key element of my heart as a chainsaw until the very end like that. And just like Grady was saying with those Chris- Chrissy chapters in the middle, the original papers that Jade writes for her history teacher were each 10 or 12 pages long. And my <laughs> eight, my agent, my yeah, my agent said, you know, get off the soapbox, Stephen. Nobody wants to do <laughs> this crap. And so I had to shorten each of them to two pages. Where that, that I love that title, My Heart is a Chainsaw. Do you remember when you came up with that? Yeah, I do. I was on the trail um, on my mountain bike and my editor, Joe Monty, who had made me just rewrite the last 10% of My Heart is a Chainsaw when it was still called Lake Access Only. Um, he And I, I pushed back so hard. I did not. I thought I knew how the novel ended. Nobody else knew, but he was right. And I'm so glad I took his advice. Um, Joe does this thing at the very end. He tells me, let's do a better title. And, you know, I'm pulling my hair, tearing my clothes because Lake Access Only is the title and it's the only one I can think of. But um, so I just went and rode my bike. I mean, not solid for two weeks, but every day I was on the trail on my bike, listening to horror podcasts, listening to horror novels. Um, and I remember the precise moment on the trail where I was, where the title just fizzed into my head. And it wasn't really, I was listening to the podcast Boys and Ghouls, I guess, but it wasn't from anything they said. I think they probably said something chainsaw adjacent and it just kind of clicked in my head <laughs> that I should do that. That's right. I, I like that phrase, chainsaw adjacent. Yeah. <laughs> well, so so Grady was mentioning, yeah, that all these Final Girl stuff came out like kind of around 2014, 2015, like this Final Girls movie that actually I just watched the other night. And you said that you really liked that, right, Stephen? I do. I really like that movie. It has more emotional punch at the end than nearly any slasher. Yeah, I hadn't yeah, seen it- that one before. Uh you know, I definitely caught up on a few movies prepping for the panel, and I really, really enjoyed that one. Um, I love the Malin Ackerman's character, like the mom. Yeah. You know, that, that whole relationship with uh, Max and her mother. Again, yeah. a final girl with a masculine first name. <laughs> uh, a dead mother, like Sydney. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it kind of made me think of... Uh, plain bad heroines a little bit like i guess because i just read that recently uh uh that novel emily oh i'm trying to Dan, remember the name danforth emily danforth yeah emily it? danforth yeah. yeah you know which had the actress who was in a slasher movie and her daughter uh i love i love the intersection of slasher and comedy and i thought that one did it perfectly and had a great emotional like hinge on it which yeah, it was yeah. it was fantastic. It dealt with yeah. all the great tropes. It was it was gory. It was funny. It yeah, it was like a, it was a, a tearjerker. Yeah, it was. I was really it surprised was. how how emotionally affecting it was. But so so Teresa, what other movies did you watch in preparation for this panel? Uh, You're next. Uh, that one definitely <laughs> made an impression on me too. I, <laughs> you know, I uh, I just kind of had it on in the background, you know, and I'm like, oh, slashers could be very comforting in the background. And then I actually started like sitting down and watching it and getting pulled in like right from the first like dinner scene, anything with arrows, I'm going to be kind of down for, uh, that was my pandemic hobby. I took up archery. So I was like, Oh, okay. Now I'm, I'm invested in all of this. This is horrendous. I can't imagine these poor people. It's like the Hills have eyes, you know, watching your whole family get taken out one by one. And I really, really love the final girl in that one, Erin. 
I thought she was a total badass. And oh, I loved it. She frustrated the bad guys at every turn. Definitely, definitely rooted for her. And it was one of the more fun movies I've seen in a while. Yeah, yeah well, let's just explain the premise because it's a great premise if you haven't seen it. So, so basically, yeah, there's it's a it's a sort of classic home invasion story, uh, but one of the like the girlfriend of one of the family members, uh, like she seems normal, but she grew up in a sort of on a survivalist compound in the Australian outback where she was trained to survive. So it turns out that she's actually the most dangerous person in this story. Um, yeah, which is just, just a, a, a terrific uh, setup for a final girl story. Yeah. Wonderful booby traps. I'm definitely, if I'm ever in a situation like that, I'm going to remember like the two by fours and nails around all the doors and windows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stephen, were you going to say something about your next? Um, I love your next. I think your next is great. Um, and I, I love that it, what your next asks or really its premise, I guess, is, um, what if the survivor, girl was badass from the beginning most stories trans transform someone into this warrior princess or whatever but um sherry varnson's Aaron is um she's just bad from the get-go you know and that's (laughs) so so compelling well it seems like that's been kind of a trend uh in final girl movies for, for the final girl to get more and more badass i mean like some of the other ones i watched uh, were Don't Breathe, Ready or Not, and The Hunt. Uh, and The Hunt is, is another one where the, the final girl is like really, really, is a really, really formidable soldier, you know, right from the, you know, right from the get go. That was actually something I really pushed back against really hard. And I feel like Steven did a little too in yeah, My Heart yeah. is a Chainsaw is I wanted to make sure that every time my final girl, Lynette, like my main one, pulled a gun or tried to fight, that it just went wrong. That either she wasn't as strong as she thought she was or she made the situation worse. Because as much as I love seeing badasses on screen, like I've been in enough violent situations where I just know it never goes your way. <laughs> and like, and and I really didn't want this to be a celebration of sort of badassitude. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Like in My Heart is a Chainsaw, what I wanted to come against was this idea that the final girl is like perfection. Um, If the final girl is this herself an avenging angel or something, then I think a little 12 or 13 year old girl is going to have a hard time seeing herself up on that pedestal, you know? And I think a final girl is not actually about how you look to the world or your abilities. It's about what you got inside you, you know? And if you have that will, that insistence upon your own life, um, then that's what it takes, you know? Oh, you're making me feel like I could be a final girl. Well, I feel like that was... Maybe I won't be Vasquez. (laughs) Yeah, well, I feel like that was such a thing, though, with early final girls, is that, like, the ones in the earlier slashers, and I would even say throughout the 80s, sort of the ones before now, they weren't particularly strong or fast or even all that smart, Um, you know, but they just sort of didn't quit. Like I think someone earlier, I think it was Steven or or Dave or someone said, you know, the key is resourcefulness and that's sort of what they do. They just don't quit trying things. They don't give up, but like, you know, like Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode isn't really strong or very fast. Like mm-hmm. Jenny in, in Friday two, isn't particularly powerful, you know, like they just, 
keep trying. They just don't stop. And I think that's something that's been a little bit lost now where final girls are smart. They are strong. They are capable. It's one thing that drove me a little crazy about the hunt, which even though it doesn't really play as a slasher to me, to me, that's more survival horror. There's something very nanny, nanny, boo, boo about it. You know, like it's this sort of John Wick thing that drives me up the wall where I can take it in small doses. And if I was 14, I would love it. But as an actual grown ass man, um, I, I look at it and I'm just like, ugh, I hate this main character because everyone else like, oh, we killed him. Oh, no, we thought we killed him. But now he's stabbing me in the dick with his belt buckle. You know, it's just like every, you know, oh, I thought, you know, I dropped her. But now she's stuck her thumb through my eye. It's just like it's like the John Wick and the main character in The Hunt and all these, or, or Atomic Blonde. Even it's like they are the Jasons in these movies that glorify killers. Well, but I mean, the hunt though is, I think, is interesting because it's not, it's it's not like you're like not sure if she's going to survive or something. I mean, it, it's it's way more like 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 you're pretty confident in her ability to take care of herself. And then the the point of the movie isn't so much focused on that, but it's about like the broader social context. Yeah, or- yeah. But I just mean like you know, it's like. I'm a very shallow person. And so if I'm (laughs) sitting down talking to like the smartest person in the world and they're explaining to me like global economic theory, but at the same time they have like, I don't know, like a freaking dolphin tattoo that says, you know, (laughs) everything is love on their neck and like really, really like a really, really bad rat tail. I'm going to hate that person. And so it's kind of like the hunt has bigger social messages, but I loathe that main character so hard and so much that they're lost on me because I'm shallow. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I've, I feel like lately, you know, under a lot of stress, you know, there's something comforting about watching these final girls be really confident. I mean, f- you know, for me, maybe it's like, how middle-aged men watch Walter White on Breaking Bad and it's like confidence porn. You know, you want to watch someone. Oh, and I am not immune. Absolutely. I mean, I love (laughs) Lee Child, Jack Reacher books and that's all it is, is confidence porn, you know, a hundred percent. Like, Yes, I agree. There is that. I'm just saying, like, like in some cases, it started to it started to be such a trend that's gone on for so long. It's really I'm really getting numb to it, and it's starting to eat at me. Like, I can't read Jack Reacher books anymore. I can't rewatch John Wick movies. Yeah, I'm sad. Well, see, I did, I did like the the heart of Final Girls, the movie, more than yeah, you know the competence and badass of Aaron mm-hmm. in your next, you know, yeah. just something I, again, I think final girl dealing with trauma. And that's something that I loved about, you know, again, if, you know, final girl support group or Halloween 2018 to see the after the after effects, the final girl after the credits run and how she goes on with her life. Uh, yeah. That to me, because I'm, you know, for me, I'm, I'm not final girl age. I'm, I'm a grown ass woman. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they don't make a lot of slashers about grown ass women. I well, mean, as Steven I, pointed I'm, out, and then there were none. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm here on the right group of people yeah. to ask, are there, <laughs> where are the final women? If you're our age and you're in a slasher, you're in an Agatha Christie book. 
<laughs> yeah, or you, you're the parent who is useless, you know. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Like, I really wish someone would make a gallery of useless slasher parents. <laughs> <laughs> well, great, great. I mean, like, I didn't, you know, your um, your previous book was um, the Southern Book Club's yeah. Guide to Slaying Vampires. And you said you wanted to write about, like, adult, you know, like, middle-aged women or, or Grown something. Grown-ass women, David. Yeah. So maybe you, could, maybe you could do that for... Uh, yeah. <laughs> call the, call the book Useless Slasher Parents. <laughs> uh, you know, um, there's a, there is that that movie. I think it's from 2015, maybe Last Girl Standing, and it it it's not about a um, it is a, I guess it is about a final girl who's you know aging into proper adulthood, but um, it's it's about what happens after you know Gail Weathers comes on scene and narrates this tragedy and all that stuff. Um. It's really, really compelling because, as a, as Grady was kind of saying earlier, um, Laurie Strode has to live with the violence of this night forever, whereas PJ Souls doesn't. You know, and this last girl standing is about trying to live with what's happened, and it's not easy, man. Man, I've never even heard of that movie. Yeah, so let me. I'll, I'll add that to my list here. Yeah, yeah totally. so, so I mentioned the ones. The ones I watched were your next final girls, don't breathe, ready or not, and the hunt. I'll put last girl standing on there. Are there any others from the 2010s that are sort of must watch? Final girl. I would say movies? tragedy, tragedy girls, and happy death day, and probably freaky too. Yeah, I, I think happy death day is definitely worth including in sort of the modern pantheon. Yeah, I'm not sure about two, but one definitely. Yeah, one day, yeah, two becomes science fiction, basically. Yeah. But the first one, the first one's a really competent slasher, I think. What? Sorry, Stephen. What were the other ones you mentioned there? Freaky and um, Tragedy Girls, probably. Yes. What? What are the? What are those? Tragedy Girls is um, hard to explain without giving away the the big reveal. <laughs> I guess. Um, okay. It's a lot of people dying in high school. I mean, that's one way to say it. A whole lot of people dying in high school. And um, okay. The other one, Freaky, it's the same guy who did Happy Death Day. It's basically Freaky Friday with, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis. And uh, what if a slasher and a finer girl switched bodies? Ah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've really been enjoying doing the homework for this one because what's really nice about slashers is they all seem to be about an hour and a half long. Yeah. Which is about what my uh, attention span can take in these yep. uh, unprecedented times. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I really, I was surprised how much I enjoyed all the movies that I watched for this. There weren't any, uh, any clunkers that I watched this week. And, and I, I mean, so, so a reason that I dislike a lot of movies is that they just go on too long. And I hadn't really made that connection. But yeah, these were all like exactly 90 minutes, I think. And maybe that's, that's a big part of why I, I admit uh, I hadn't I so watched much. Cabin in the Woods before this podcast. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. It's, it's, just one of those things where I'm like, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Oh, Joss Whedon. I love yeah. Drew Goddard. Drew Goddard yeah. is amazing. Yeah. And yeah, so I watched it for the first time, like really sat down and watched it. I, Cause I kind of knew the premise a little bit, but I didn't know, you know, and the, and the premise is, um, you know, a, a shadowy organization uh, arranges a ritual every year where they have like a core group of innocents who are archetypes trapped in a stage like the hunger games and there has to be a final girl basically but i did, and i kind of knew it was like a reality show but i didn't know how upfront they were about all of it so that really made me like sit up and pay attention and see like all right what are they going to comment on 
in here. And then that was, you know, again, uh, don't want to get too spoilery, but you know, David, you already mentioned it about is the final girl of cabin in the woods really a final girl. And I, I do think she is. Yeah. I, I think she is too. Yeah. I, I think she would count. And it had one of my, you know, like that cameo, at the yeah. end. Yeah, oh, I guess man. I should have given a spoiler warning 90 minutes ago about that everyone dies at the end. <laughs> sorry, sorry everyone. Well, it no, is. And this is what is right. This is what's shocking to me though. That movie is like is it 10 years old, 11 years old? 11, 11, 11 years old. Yeah. So yeah. how does it hold up, Teresa? I thought it was great. Okay. Yeah. I was very curious. I, 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 I yeah, still, that's, I thought, that's also one of the movies I put on my my um laptop for the plane is Cabin in the Woods. I, I watch it I watch it compulsively. Yeah, I definitely want to watch it again now, knowing what like the real premise is and the story. Oh, it moved so fast, and the cast was great, really clever. And I think you know he talks about um, these beats of horror gore, like really gory, and then it gets funny, and you kind of relax a bit, and then boom, like every ten, twelve minutes, there's a horrible death scene and, and <laughs> violence, you know, and it, it really pulls it along. And then, yeah, at the end when uh, Sigourney Weaver came out, you know, I just had, you know, it, it all comes back to Ellen Ripley for me. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought Cabin in the Woods was brilliant. I definitely recommend that. Yeah. And I just want to describe the premise of Ready or Not, which I'd never, I hadn't heard anything about it, but, um, but basically there's this wealthy family and uh, generations ago, one of them, like the grandfather, would ever made a deal with the devil to ensure that they would be wealthy and prosperous in their game business. But, you know, that's like board game and card game type business. But um, every time someone marries into the family, they have to draw a card of what game to play that night. And all the all of them are, you know, just normal games, except if they pull the card that says hide and seek, then the family is required to hunt that person, hunt the bride down and sacrifice her to the devil. And uh, I don't know, just the just yeah, just the way that gets set up at the beginning, I, I, I thought was really really cool and really really uh, compelling. Yeah, Samara Weaving, she in that in that movie, she is such a good survivor. She she's good in all the horror she does. Really, I, I can't stop watching her movies. She's so good. Um, but you know, we were talking about Chad in the Woods, and Teresa mentioned the commentary it's doing, and I think my favorite bit of commentary it does relates back to what Grady was saying about Laurie Strode and Halloween. You know, not being the most capable final girl. Um, you remember in Halloween that Laurie Strode, when she gets Michael's knife, she drops it. And that's when everybody groans like, girl, you're going to do that again, you know. But in Cabin in the Woods, when that happens, when the final girl gets the, the knife uh, in the control room, the administrators hit a button which shoots a little spark from the handle into the final girl's hand such yeah. that she drops that knife. And that we understand <laughs> yeah. that all, it makes us understand that all the slashers we've seen have been, they've had the same control booth above them at some point. Well, you know, and one thing, I mean, and so, sorry, I just want to make sure I, we're okay to spoil an 11 year old movie, right? I, I think so. It's, yeah, yeah I, I think, think that's that, I mean, that boat is ship has sailed at this point. There, there's something about Cabin in the Woods that I find so exhilarating. Um, I like the movie a lot. I, I, I really enjoyed watching it. I don't know if I'd rewatch it as much as Steven, but like mm-hmm. I do but there's the the ending of that movie is so exhilarating to watch these two main characters opt out. It is yeah. genius just to say this whole system that's been set up for us 
if the choice is between participating and the end of the world, then maybe we deserve this world to end is so great. And you can read anything onto that. You can say it's the slasher genre. You can say it's the world we live, the, the economic system, our Western, whatever you want to read on it. But it's such a great kind of evergreen moment. And it's something that really I haven't seen in popular culture since like movies from the 60s. This idea of this is what's on offer, then I'd rather have nothing. It's yeah, it's exactly. really, I think, really deceptively deep or simple. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but we need to to wrap this up. So uh, let's get some final thoughts. So, uh, so Teresa, any uh, final thoughts on this whole topic of final girls? Well, I guess I heard Grady say that Alice Johnson was his favorite final girl. Like, I, I would like to know the other panelists. What is your like, who was your final girl crush? Like, who was, like, your imprint? <laughs> I would probably say Sydney. She's my favorite. Sydney Prescott. I like mm. how, um, even like, like Grady was saying, the screen movies kind of go down in quality. But um, I think Sydney fights through that, and we see her insist upon her own life. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, for me, honestly, I've got two. Alice Johnson, I think, is my favorite final girl in general, she's just got such a great journey. And next to Sigourney Weaver's scene at the end of Aliens, she gets the most badass gearing up scene, I think, in, in horror movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, the final girl I really imprinted on, though, is is Alice Hardy, Adrian King from Friday One and what happens to her at the beginning of Two. That will that. Is just was just such a huge resonant moment in my life, weirdly enough, which makes me sound like an incredibly shallow person. <laughs> like the birth of a child, <laughs> screw that. Reading Fango <laughs> 12 and seeing Alice Hardy get killed. <laughs> um, but it was just such a big deal for me that I think that's stuck with me ever since. Yeah, and then for me, it would be either... Yeah, Sigourney Weaver and Alien or or Nev Campbell and Scream. I mean, I didn't actually watch a lot of I didn't watch probably any slasher movies growing up because I was just too scared to watch them. So uh, I didn't see them until I was an adult. So so those would be the characters that when I was younger and, and it was it was like to the extent that I watched like Scream was really one of the first slasher movies I watched. So when they're all the stuff about, you know, this is what happens in slasher movies, you know, like the. Yeah, uh, the people who have sex die and everything. I was like, oh, really? This is this is so interesting. I didn't know any of this, you know. Oh, cool. Well, you know, there's a weird thing with Ellen Ripley being a final girl because listen, I'll, I'll take her. That's fine. I mean, and like Teresa was saying, they're not quite slasher movies, but I think the Alien movies, the first three, they're certainly the big. If you're going to consider them slashers and Ellen Ripley a final girl, they're the biggest budgeted, sort of most lavish slashers out there like you know i mean tens of millions of dollars where most slashers cost maybe a dozen of millions of dollars at most <laughs> yeah or what like i saw that your next made 26 million dollars off a one million dollar budget so yeah you know and i, I think mean i mean halloween made like 60 million off a three hundred and thirty-five thousand dollar yeah. budget and yeah that's kind of what got the big snowball rolling everybody's like we can cash in too <laughs> Um, but so Stephen, final thoughts on final girls? 
Um, I think we're kind of in a final girl moment right now. The last one we had really was the Neo Slashers after Scream. And they were the first we'd seen since the Golden Age in the you know late 70s and early 80s. And who knows what this moment will end up getting called or how long it will last. But I think there's a whole lot of us rethinking the dynamic between the slasher and the final girl and the audience too, you know? And it's going to lead us into some really fertile territory, I think. All right, cool. And Grady, final thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but I mean, because I think it sounds shallow, but um, I feel like we're in an age of sort of meta slashers where people are really looking at the genre and sort of examining it for strengths and weaknesses. And like Steven said, really doing stuff with it that's that's really different and sort of stretching the boundaries. But meta always makes things sound so glib. I hate using that term, but I feel like it is the <laughs> age of like meta slashers. I never heard neo slashers, but I like that a lot. Yeah, and if you want to check out some awesome meta slashers or neo slashers, definitely check out My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones and The Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendricks. And also check out, you know, Teresa DeLucci's story cavity on Strange Horizons. Um, but we are all out of time, so let's uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Grady Hendricks, Teresa DeLucci, and Stephen Graham Jones. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, man. Thank you. I survived. <laughs> <laughs> we all did. What kind of slasher? Yeah, hopefully, every, <laughs> hopefully everyone did. <laughs> Watch out. I'm behind you. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our panel. So big thanks again to Grady Hendricks, Teresa DeLucci, and Stephen Graham Jones for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.